You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It is Saturday, September 27th, 2008. 10.06 a.m. on the central coast of California. Today on GeekSpeak, we have a discussion with author Bill Tanser all about internet trends. He has a book called Click, What Millions of People Are Doing Online and Why It Matters. In the second half, we'll be asking you questions and comments about technology. It's time for GeekSpeak. Welcome to Geek Speak, bridging the gaps between geeks and the rest of humanity. I'm your host, Lyle Troxel. Please keep in mind the views expressed during Geek Speak are not necessarily those of KUSP. Today on Geek Speak, we have author Bill Tanser on. He is talking about his unexpected insights for business and life about millions of people online clicking and looking at what they're doing. So the book is Click, and um, it's it's kind of it's about internet analysis and he's got some fascinating insights on how we think and how we act online and possibly how that motivate or how that uh, enlightens us to what we're actually doing and thinking in life. So that's what Bill Tanser is. But first, we're going to do some geek news. And in the second half, you're welcome to call us and ask us questions about the topic at hand. The numbers are 476 2800 or toll free at 1 800 655 5877. Of course, you can go to geekspeak.org to send us email. And I'll give out that contact information again when I invite your participation in about half an hour. GeekSpeak on KOSP is supported by Santa Cruz Electronics, offering an extensive selection of computer and electronic parts as well as support services. Santa Cruz Electronics is open daily at 2808 SoCal Avenue and online at santacruzelectronics.com. This is GeekSpeak. My name is Lyle Troxel. In the air with me are geeks. Sean Cleveland, Senior Technical Marketing Manager at NVIDIA. Good morning. Rick, good morning, Sean. Rick Kleffel, host of KOSP's Agony Column and his well-known book review website of the same name. Good morning. Good morning. We also have Miles Elam. Miles is no longer a slacker. He's working really hard teaching, and he's a student as well and a political junkie. Miles, morning. Good morning. And, of course, we also have our guest, Bill Tanser, and he's going to sit here, and you're welcome to participate if you'd like, Bill. Thanks, Lyle, and thanks for having me on the show. Certainly, certainly. All right, so let's start the news off with you, Sean. Yeah, I kind of want to start it off with a gripe. So it turns out that uh, Governor Schwarzenegger has passed a bill on Wednesday outlawing text messaging while driving. So you want people to drive along at 50 <sighs> texting miles? No, he wants to be able to drive along. <laughs> <laughs> maybe there should be a test for people. If they can't pass texting while driving, then maybe okay, they can't wait, wait, text. Okay, wait, wait, wait. You sound like an evil person right now. So explain to me, how are you texting while uh, driving? I only text at stoplights. But, you know, I'm driving an hour to work, you know, an hour home. Mm-hmm. I'm in San Tomas, and I'm stopping at every light. And I'm waiting. Right. And now I can't text? 
Oh, it's horrible. Okay, so so, wait, so, so you're the guy that I'm honking at because you're sitting there texting. <laughs> no, I'm really good about green. that. No, no, no. I no, go see, when the he, when the cars move. You're I good at it work. now because you take your tech device, you put it up close, so your peripheral vision picks yeah. up the stoplight. See, right? it makes it worse. And I'm going to be looking low now. So you're going to break the law, Sean? Can oh, I get that right? Of ready? course I am. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sean's a good guy. Uh, He's anyway. a great father. <laughs> <laughs> What's the real news, Sean? You want me to go to Miles? Yeah, no, no, no. Actually, I, I do have a real news okay, story because I know we go to Miles and we're just going to get. I know we're going to pl- political. Yeah, liar. we yeah. started talking this morning. We're like, oh, save it, save it for the news. All right, so uh, Comcast is um, worked with the FCC, and I guess the FCC has approved their approach to dealing with heavy download bandwidth users. Um, these people, they we already talked about this. Uh, I think two weeks ago, they they're going to cap 250 gigabytes of download a month. So they figure that's about 100 times the average user. Uh, consumes, which is about 62,500 songs, 125 standard definition movies. So those people who are downloading really heavy, um, 250 gigabytes a month, so what happens to them? So they figured out that what they're going to do is they're going to put them on a different feed. And uh, those those heaviest people during congested periods are going to have their, their bandwidth throttled. But they're not going to start charging them for more, or are they just going to throttle them? It sounds like they're just going to throttle them. I know we talked about them charging. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if both happens. You know, it seems to me, this, is this still the cable company? This is Comcast. Comcast. Yeah. See, it seems to me Comcast makes a decision and then they get this horrible press and then they seem to change their decision a little bit. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's kind of interesting. I, I think it makes a lot of sense to say, okay, if you're a high-end user, let us know. We're not going to charge you more. We're going to put you in a special network and throttle you if, if bandwidth gets high. So that I, kind I of think thing that's a better sense. solution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Than, than, than charging. And, the and especially if they're not going to give you a tool or um, a way to track how much you, right. you know, you've, you've downloaded. Where are you at in the month? Yeah, well, so I mean, a very easy tool to do so would simply, over time, like you go very fast, and then as you start hitting the, uh, as you get past like 50%, they throttle you back a little bit, and then just a little use bit a further. Inverse parabolic so curve you, to well, yeah, so you can just look and see like, oh, well, I'm not getting 600 kilobytes. Yeah, we all have Comcast accounts. I'm getting 300. Mm-hmm. If you've be, got a Comcast account, go to a web page. Comcast tells you at any point in time. I mean, if they're keeping track of the data, why can't wait, they wait, make that really? available? Seriously? No, that's what they should do. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, Sean's right. If they're keeping track of the data, then why don't they provide that data yeah. to you? Yeah. I agree. Well, thank you, Sean, for that story. Yeah. Miles, hate to ask, but uh, what's up with um, intellectual? Oh wait, that's bad, right? What's up with copyright? <laughs> what's up with copyright, <laughs> well, trademark, the, and patent? It's the the term intellectual property, mm-hmm. which refers to trademark, copyright, and patent, even though there are three areas of law that have very little to do with one another, other than the fact that they're all imaginary. Trade, trademark is a very specific rule that I think you and I agree with 100. percent well, all, all three of them I agree with. Uh, well, let's pretty l- much let's like get in, just in lay down real quickly. Just, trademark is a commerce thing, so that you know the product you're getting is from a company that's invested a lot of name and a lot of time and energy into that product name. So no one else can sell stuff under the name Coca-Cola that has to do with soft drinks. Right. Very good idea. It's, it's implemented pretty well. We're doing okay with it. And uh, copyright, or let's let's do with patents. Patents are doing pretty well, except for software patents. Right. Okay. So what? Why is what's what's the news about this? Well, the Senate has passed a bill that they're referring to as the Pro IP Act. And while there was a provision earlier about how they're going to have the Department of Justice prosecute um, intellectual property law through it, mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of pushback from that because that was going to be the Department of Justice taking care of civil cases. In other words, acting as a, a legal arm for an industry, in this case, the entertainment industry and the like, right. um, rather than acting as a criminal or right. you know, something that so, would be more 
useful of our so that was kind of uh, shot down dollars or executive dollars huh so that was kind of shot down that was shot down that was removed from it but now it still contains increased penalties for infringement so if you are guilty of copyright infringement it's going to hit you harder than let's say if you i don't know held up a liquor store mm-hmm. um but there's also civil forfeiture provisions which are very worrisome this is actually to me it seems fairly reminiscent of drug war that if you are guilty of um and their terminology trafficking in copyright copyrighted material illegally then you can have goods in your home or your computer your network or uh, i don't know what the limits are Mm -hmm. currently i need to research that uh that can be seized from you in much the same way that we've heard from the drug war people will have some pot and they would lose their home mm-hmm. um and so you download a few songs and what what about well right now they're talking about it as with regards to large organized crime um this is the this is the main focus of the bill mm-hmm. is these groups that their sole purpose is to get copyrighted material and they're making money off of it is that and even happening no that is absolutely happening is it happening in the u.s Yes. Wait, so people are stealing content and then selling it? Because all the copyright infringement it, stuff making, that I see, making it available. Also making it available. See, but they're also not making I'm, money off of it. So it's not a criminal organization in the sense that they, there's a lot of finances Except there. that you, if you have a site that is making this stuff available and you have ads, you are making money off of it. Ah, yeah. So at the same time, legislation like, like this in the past has eventually led to individuals. Right. where it isn't going right. after the, a the, large The law is for a conglomeration, but really it comes down to a person. Right, it becomes, it becomes a convenience thing if you want to go after someone. And mm-hmm. they're also Im- implementing an IP czar, so an entirely new position. In, intellectual property czar, which right. would actually handle patents as well and trademarks? In theory, because they're talking about intellectual property. That's they're what all lumped together. Okay. And now, Miles? he would be con- coordinating enforcement. Of this. Yeah, Rick? Miles, is this the same law that has the, the DOJ... Um, going after um, civil claims, acting as pro was, bono lawyers for the civil claims? That was the original provision that was struck down. Oh, so they that struck part, that down. Yeah, you know, so that part of it has That's been good. pulled down. That's but good. there's still some aspects of that that are remaining. But oh. that the part that you were referring to, the part that we were worried about, has been ratchet, rationed back or ratcheted back quite a bit. Good, good. All right, well, thank you, Miles, for that so update. So if you don't want this to pass, if you think this is a bad idea... Um, now is the time to be contacting your local representative and telling them to vote no. All right. And, Miles, right after the show, if I give you my laptop, because your laptop is broken, will you put some links up about contacting representatives in the area of California that we cover? Certainly. Thank you very much. All right. Um, and just to be clear, I want to kind of make a mandate that we stop using the term intellectual property. I think it's one of those words that actually is owned by a certain side, and I don't think that should be something we use. So we should talk about copyright and trademark and patent. That's fine. But right. let's try talk to stop Talk about copyright law or... That's right. Patent law. All right. Thank you, Miles. Um, Rick, do you have some news today? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've got some news about a couple of forthcoming books. These are coming out in February. There are two books that I think uh, a lot of your listeners are going to want to look for. One is called Little B. It's by a, an author named Chris Cleave. He came to prominence when on 7 7, a couple years ago, uh, um, he released his book, first book, Incendiary, which was about. Uh, British ter- terrorism on British soil on the day of the 7-7 bombings. And it was a, his book was really beautiful. That first book, Incendiary, was 
really beautiful and also very funny and surreal. It created a kind of alternate present of the UK vision of the UK with dirigibles floating overhead to uh, stop terrorism. It was really kind of scary and eerie. He has a new book coming out in February called Little Bee. We don't know anything about this book except for, and, and what this is what's really intriguing about it. On the back cover of a book, they're usually going to tell you much of the plot. This book says, not only doesn't tell you the plot, it says, don't tell, once you've read this book, don't tell other people about the plot. It's going to be now, a hard one to interview, right? Yeah, it's going to be a <laughs> difficult interview. Uh, on the other hand, um, I did read enough of this book to, to uh, get that this is really funny. He's very, very funny, and he's very insightful. This book is about the refugee situation in the UK, and it looks to be very interesting. That'll be coming out in February. Mm-hmm. The other really big piece of news is Dan Simmons. Now, um, Dan Simmons is a longtime science fiction writer. His, his breakthrough book came out in the mid-'80s. It was called Hyperion. Unfortunately, Dan Simmons has a kind of a, a, a habit of changing his career, going from writing science fiction, he'll write a horror novel. And then everybody say, you're the next Stephen King, Dan. When's your next novel coming out? He follows that up with a mystery novel. They'll say, you're the next Jim Thompson, Dan. When's your next mystery coming out? And then he follows that up with another science fiction novel. Well, this is uh, kind of unusual. His last novel was a his- piece of historical fiction called The Terror, which was about the voyage of the Endeavor into the Arctic. Is and, this the one about Charles Dickens? Uh, yeah, he's got a new book coming out called Drood. <laughs> and it's all about Charles Dickens, um, his last days when Charles Dickens took a very dark turn in his life. It's an 800-page book, and it is brilliantly written. It's beautiful, and it also incorporates his um, trademark ability to um, integrate slight supernatural twists with really deeply and richly evoked history. It's interesting. I wonder if the the concept of using Drood means he's not going to finish it. Because I don't think... uh, uh, Dickens actually finished Drood. I think he passed away before he was able to finish the, the book. Well, uh, the book, mystery of Edwin Drood. Yes, yeah. yeah. The the book actually um, is finished. Uh-huh. Good. But it, what's interesting <laughs> is it's narrated by um, uh, D- Dickens' contemporary Wilkie Collins. A- and uh, I talked to to Simmons briefly, and he said he was so happy to be out of the laudanum addled addict's head after having written for him <laughs> for 14 months. Well, that'll be great. Oh, well, thank you, Rick, for those recommendations. So, Dan Simmons, uh, Drood, and uh, Little B is by who? Chris Cleave. Thank you. We'll take a look for those. And let's go ahead and get on to the book at hand actually, today. I, oh, yeah. I have a new story that ties in with all well, what we're go talking for it. about today. Sean, please. Happens that um, Hitwise, the company that Bill works at um, as a general manager of research? Global research. Global yeah. research. Um, did a story last week um, on Wednesday uh, about Facebook and uh, MySpace. So they were tracking, where are people going? You know, what, mm-hmm. what are they using these days? And they saw that Facebook has seen their traffic increase 50% in the U.S. since last August. Um, and not so good news is that Facebook has gone down, or MySpace has gone down, um, and, you know, yeah, but there's still 67.5% of the social networking market in the U.S. So MySpace is still on top. Facebook is growing fast. In the next three, My Yearbook, Tagged, and Bebo, um, are less than 2%. So, I mean, wow. Yeah, um, and, you know, we actually, that's a custom category of the top social networks we tracked. We actually track about 5,500. And it just happens yesterday, I was surfing through the bottom of that list to find out what are some of the niche social networks that people are belonging to. And that's us? Uh, well, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's surprising. There, there's there's a social network called Glock Talk, which is a social network devoted to about the, the Glock gun. pistol. There's, oh, my gosh. There's uh, Divorce 360, which is a divorce social network. There's um, I, Smokers, I can't remember, Smokers Welcome. There's a site devoted, a pro-smoking 
site, the social network. It's it's amazing the niche sites that are showing up in that category. Wow. Fifty five hundred. We were just looking at the top fifty five, I believe, when we did well, this report. Yeah, the, the last two make a lot of sense to me, considering the number of people who have been divorced and then the number of smokers that are now relegated to being outside in this ostracized group. I could totally see that being a, a very well connected group. Yeah, and this is a, this is actually something we're studying. And uh, my wife's in the studio. I was just mentioning to the this to her um, when we were in New York. I've seemed to have noticed a lot of more smoking just recently. And I'm guessing there's probably some correlation be between increased smoking and economic troubles that, that we're facing. Huh, I haven't proved it out yet, more but I'm actually going to dive into to see if I can, I can prove that out. Yeah. So our guest today is Bill Tanser. He has written a book, What Millions of People Are Doing Online and Why It Matters. Click. Um, unexpected insights for business and life, and I got to say that I've been reading the book, and it's great. It has you've got wonderful stories about looking at giant sets of data, and I just want to be clear that um, the way that Hitwise captures the data is kind of complicated. is It is anonymous, and except for some people that are actually um, kind of signed up to the program to get more details. That's how we know age groups and things of that nature. And I went, I put a link on the Geekspeak.org website on today's show about exactly how. Um, how you do what you do. Great little article you've got on your site. So let's not get into how you actually get all the data. But with this data, you're able to ask a question like, how many people are visiting a certain site that are also visiting another site and see a graph about that over time? That's, that's the general stuff, right? That's right. We're tracking about a million different websites visited by 10 million internet users in the U.S., divided into 172 different industry categories and tracked by the month, week, and even down to the day. Wow. And I've got this wonderful job. I get to just jump in and play with this data every day and find interesting trends. Okay, so I know you've already talked about this this quite a bit, but I think the um, the prom dress is pretty interesting. So can you tell me a bit about the prom dress? <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've got a bit of a, an obsession with uh, prom dress data online. And my wife, I know, is very concerned about this obsession. But <laughs> to tell you the, the story, the short version of the story, I uh, tasked one of my analysts to, uh, I asked her to analyze all the search terms driving traffic to retail sites in a given period. And she had a couple hundred thousand terms to analyze. Mm -hmm. I asked her, what was the top generic term by category that people were looking for uh, going to these retail sites? And category she, meaning like apparel. Right. Would be the, okay. Yeah. Or, or even down, I want to know what specifically, what's the top generic thing people are looking for. So I don't want brands. I want to know what But in the category of, of apparel, of clothing. And this was actually all oh, retail sites. Oh, really? All yeah. retail sites. Okay, go on. She came back, and, and you know, to your point of, of you know thinking it's just apparel, she came back kind of shocked, and she said the number one thing that people are searching for, just thing, is prom dresses. And I thought, okay, that's really strange. And she says, no, it gets stranger. It's January is when we pulled this data. And so we did a little chart on searches for prom dresses, and every single year it spikes in January. And before, I really had no interest in prom dresses whatsoever, but at this point I cleared my desk, and it was all about prom dresses. And it remains so for like two to three years. I'm studying prom dresses. One thing, the first thing I did is I called up some retailers that sell prom dresses, and I said, when do you market these these things and they said from March to May. So I all the them, marketing hits March and May, and of course yeah. prom happens in June, July. Areas, exactly. Right? Well, in in end of May. And so, so January is the spike. What? Yeah. yeah. So um, I have this file folder of unsolved mysteries in my desk, and this was in there. And one of the things I do when I go out and speak at conferences, sometimes I'll put up one of these charts. I do it at a travel conference. Yeah, Here's you do a actually pretty. Chart. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I did this at an online publishers meeting. Well, I heard that you were asking a lot of people. I yeah. was asking a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> Because you're really trying to get down to the bottom of this. Right? Exactly. Uh, so, you know, this one meeting where I put the, um, I throw the chart up, an older gentleman comes to me, very distinguished looking guy, hands me a card, and he says, son, I'm all about prom dresses. <laughs> Your <laughs> answer came true, yeah. Yeah, I found, like, my, uh, my prom dress doppelganger. <laughs> and he says, um, 
He says, you know, my industry actually caused this trend you're seeing. And so I looked at his card. He was the GM of a magazine division, a teen magazine division. He said, you know what we've done? Our advertising used to be, our season was from, from, uh, from March to May. But that's the most lucrative time for our magazine titles is that, that period to sell prom dress advertisements. So what we've done is we've changed consumer behavior. We started hitting the newsstands the first week of January with these fashion editions. Mm-hmm. And by doing that over several years, we've changed consumer behavior. Girls are now searching for prom dresses as soon as January. Okay, so see, the publishing industry does this, yes. sells a little ads, but the actual retail doesn't know? That's, and that was the coolest thing, is that the designers knew, because that's who the magazines were selling their ads to, but yeah. the retailers themselves were going off their bricks-and-mortar store yeah. traffic, and they didn't realize And the retailers, that. I mean, really, without figuring that, it's hard for them to figure out. They can, of course, I mean, the way businesses traditionally do this is they do random calling surveys and, and ask questions. But that's a hard market to hit because you're talking about teenagers. Right. And also, they might do the, the survey in May and get that, yeah, people are interested in May. They're just not as interested as in January. And I, I think you're giving retailers a lot of credit. A lot of them, at least in our experience, just go off of gut feel. Yeah. They go off of what they've experienced well, you know, in their stores. Analyzing large sets of data, it's hard not to to do gut feel. In fact, yeah. I noticed that in a lot of your in your writing, um, that you're doing an, a, um, a sample that's not like scientific response. It's a gut feeling. I agree with it. I think it's probably pretty valid. There's actually an example um, that I noticed in your in your uh, in your index. Um, you talk about oh, where was this great little mention? Uh, you talked about oh yeah, uh, recommend about New Year's uh, New Year New Year the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. having people search for diet for a week, and then they stop. Are New searching. Year's resolutions? New Year's resolutions. Yep. And then they stop talking about diet. And your assumption, probably pretty valid, that people last about a week and then they stop doing it. But my thought was, well, it's possible that everyone goes on a diet and they just don't need to learn anymore because their diet's working great, and so they only, use it for, they only search for it for a week. So it's that kind of assumptions where I see where you're coming from, and from a scientific perspective, it's not the, you know, it's not the mytho- mythology of I mean, the way you do science. But in any case... I've been loving your book. I didn't mean to critique you too hard. No, 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 that's, that's okay. And the way we do a lot of these things that we've, we've come up with, some of it just sort of happens in the day. We see it in the day that we start pursuing it. But usually we start with a hypothesis and yeah. we test it the best we can. Now, a lot of times we just find correlations, and, of course, that does not make a causation. Right. Uh, so there's ways that we can try and limit the variables and get to causation. But you're right. You never can actually prove that causation. So Right. And, and I guess the, the searching, once you really believed your data, I'm sure you kind of were questioning whether your, your prom dress data was correct in January. But once you got confirmation from it, you had a lot more faith in the system. At some point, if something comes up like that and you have no reason, no understanding of why it's happening, it still doesn't matter. It's still important for the marketers to change their website to put prom dresses on up, even if they don't, even if you don't know why it's happening. Right. Yeah, exactly right. So you, um, you kind of got famous just the last couple of days on the internet because uh, you got a lot of hits to your site. Well, what, why are you getting a lot of hits to your site right now? <laughs> Well, along with being the GM of, of research at Hitwise, I also write a column for Time magazine called The Science of Search. And right after Sarah Palin was named to the ticket, I decided to go into our data, do a little analysis. I saw a massive spike in searches on Sarah Palin. We covered a lot about this story, just the, the surge in searches on her. She surpassed all of the other candidates, even surpassed um, um, Paris Hilton, Britney Spears in terms of oh. volume of searches. Okay. Here's an example of going into the data with a hypothesis. My hypothesis when I saw the spike was that Sarah Palin, complete unknown to most of us, so a lot of people probably trying to find information about her. Makes sense. Right? That's my hypothesis. Going to test it, one of the things I can do with Hitwise data is I can say of the 4 million search terms we're capturing any given week, filter all those terms just for whatever I'm looking at. So I said, for Sarah Palin, show me the different ways people are searching for her. The breadth of searches in Sarah Palin is pretty impressive, about 14,000 unique ways that people were searching for her, and I could, I could order them in terms of volume. Here's the surprising thing. When I looked through the data, the number one thing that people were looking for by category 
was pictures of Sarah Palin. Uh, and to get more specific, hot pictures of Sarah Palin. Uh-huh. There are searches for bikini pictures, Sarah Palin, beauty pageant pictures, Sarah Palin, hot pictures, Sarah Palin. So I wrote my time column just about this, uh, this exact topic. Being addicted to data, of course, checking Google Analytics on a regular basis, and I just saw for this week, had about 68,000 visits to my site based on that term, Sarah Palin hot photos. So somebody, some search engine is, is putting you high in the ranking. Yeah, it's actually MSN was where all the traffic was coming from. I was the number one search on Sarah Palin. I think it was uh, Thursday of, uh-huh. this, of this week, and that was this massive amount of traffic. So, and, and your article's all about how the reason Sarah Palin's getting traffic, internet traffic, is because people are looking for adult content. It, it was that. I think the, the theme running through my article, though, is that if you look at search term data around politics today, specifically yeah. around the candidates, it's not so much about the issues. It's about things like image. Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's about um, superficial things, like how tall is Barack Obama? Yeah, you gave a great example, actually, in this that I hadn't really put together, and, and I guess you have some numbers behind it, which is kind of cool, that um, Barack Obama was getting more searches about religion, had more references to religion, even though his, there's not a lot of controversy around the real uh, Barack about, you know, he's a Christian and all that. But it was also, it was around because of the story about him being uh, Muslim as a child or going to a... a and this was awesome. a fascinating story. So if you remember back, January 2007, there's um, a story that Insight Magazine wrote up that uh, Obama had attended a madrasa right. that was run by extremist Muslims. And that was debunked. Yeah. It was debunked four days later by CNN. Yet if you looked at the search terms around Barack Obama the week before that story broke, there was little mention of his religion within search term data. Right after, of course, about... I think it was six of the top ten search terms had some uh, question about his religion. The interesting thing about it, though, is the half-life of that information. That lasted for about a year. until Four, it st- four days of untrue story generates a year of interest. About a year of interest on that specific topic. So wow. it really lived on. It's died down now. The, the one thing that was interesting we found about Obama that I also wrote a time column about the week before is this Obama Antichrist oh. uh, rumor. So... Um, it was the number six search term on Obama out of, I think, 11,000 unique searches. So number six was Obama Antichrist. I, I was kind of interested all, in it. I, thought, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't heard of this before, so I Googled it. And it come to find out one of my colleagues at Time Magazine had actually wrote, written an article about it. And she, um, she had blamed a McCain ad for actually causing this controversy. And that was in, I believe, in, in the summer. This, um, this ad was out that had kind of these overtones to mm-hmm. it that may have been inferring that Obama's the Antichrist. Charting search term data, though, we were actually able to d- disprove that. It did spike around the time of that ad, but the first spike happened all the way in January. And where would it come from? We don't know. I mean, we can oh, see that searching. circulating via, via email. Here's the interesting thing that, uh, uh, that we found, though. Using Hitwise data, I can tell where people go in aggregate when they search on the term. Guess what the number one site people are going to when, when searching on the term? I would go to Snoop. No, I wouldn't. I, wouldn't, I would ignore it. No, Snopes. Snopes. Snopes is it. 20% of the people searching on that term went to Snopes, which is somewhat distressing to think that people actually need to debunk. Yeah, you don't need to debunk that. right? Yeah. And I'll save your listeners some trouble. If you go to Snopes, they did declare it false. So Obama is so not, the not the interest. He's not the the other thing I thought was interesting, you talked about in your book about this um, religion, Obama, and, and search terms, is that Huckabee, Mike Huckabee, who at the time, the, it was the, um, uh, it was the, what is it called before it's the election? The primaries. primaries. The primaries, yeah. right? So Huckabee's the same level of interest in some sense. And he pre- was a preacher, like a, you know, a minister. So you'd think that he'd have higher search results for religion because he's a religious guy. I mean, and for a profession. But no, that's not the case. It was Obama because these crazy stories. Yeah. You know, I just did a Google Trends on Obama Antichrist and 
Yeah. Now, Google does. Trends kind of does a little bit about what Hitwise does. Let's talk about more about that. You're welcome to call us with questions and comments about our topic today. We're talking about internet searching. We're talking about um, some pretty fascinating data that's available to us all, and and also about what Bill does um, at Hitwise. GeekSpeak on KOSP is supported by Dr. Don Motika, announcing OptimageHealth.com in Santa Cruz, a functional medicine practice and consultation service, combining an array of modalities to achieve and maintain wellness. Appointments available at OptimageHealth.com. And Don's actually asked me to come in and check out my health, and so maybe I'll do a little geek report on that uh, next week. Imagine the Marx Brothers answering questions about cars, picture of Monty Python trying to imitate engine sounds. Mix that up with a little Dr. Ruth and some Smothers Brothers, and you've got Car Talk. You can hear Click and Clack give their advice on cars every Saturday right after GeekSpeak at 11 and Sunday morning at 9 a.m. right here on KUSP. GeekSpeak on KUSP is supported by Henry J. Ramirez, DDS in Santa Cruz, specializing in cosmetic and family dentistry, using digital technology for less radiation, and offering one appointment crowns and veneers. For appointments and more information, 423-2447. We are inviting you to Join the conversation. Ask us anything you'd like about internet searches and trends, and maybe a little bit about uh, what people are thinking and why they're thinking that in mass. The phone numbers are 476-2800, toll-free 1-800-655-5877. Again, that's 476-2800, or toll-free 1-800-655-KUSP. The geeks this morning, Rick Kleffel. Hi. Uh, now, <laughs> Sean, wait, I'm going to interview you and I'll like, go throw the mic to you. Sean Cleveland, we also have Bill Tanser. He's the author of Click. And we have Miles Elam. I'm Lyle Troxel. And the phone numbers one more time, 476-2800, 476-2800, toll, or toll free at 1-800-655-5877. Rick, yeah, go for it. Bill, tell us about prism categories. <laughs> ah, prism categories. This is a, it's one of my fav favorite topics. So one of the things we can do with our data is we've matched it with this system called Claritas Prism Clusters. Uh, and Claritas has taken the U.S. population and divided it into 66 different segments. So they go in order of affluence from number one, the upper crust, down to low-rise living, number 66. And some of my favorites in between, like number 51, which is the shotguns and pickup segment. What so is it kind of comical? Or? It, it, you know, it is. You, know, you can search backwards in our data. You can say, show me the top sites visited by segment 51, shotguns and pickups. And it, it's just like it sounds. You, you get visits to, um, uh, to gun sites, uh, visits to uh, so, wrestling sites. So this analysis of all these different numbers, th these are sites that have to do with those topics? Is that how, I mean, how do you figure out who goes where? Well, you just uh, in terms of matching up those segments to... Uh, the, the sample, yeah, and, and then you know we can just in reverse say for that sample, show us where they go. Now here's a really cool kind of geek speak application okay. of that data, is in the book we did an analysis of early adopters. So we had this idea, you know, if we could um, roll back our data before um, YouTube was really well known. So take October mm -hmm. 2005, right before it really hit big time in November, we could examine by segment who was visiting the site. So we did that, and we also did that for a bunch of other Web 2.0 sites before they were hot. Mm -hmm. And we found that we were able to isolate who the innovators and early adopters are. Then the cool thing is you can take that same group and reverse search today to find out what are they doing. Yep. And that might give us an indication of what's going to be hot Okay, what's tomorrow. the next big hot thing, Bill? Well, it's interesting. We did this exercise just about two weeks ago again. And one of the things I found fascinating is when I reverse search on groups like the Young Digerati, which is one of the early adopter segments, uh, the Bohemian Mix, 
the place they were going within multimedia was uh, they were going to a lot of sites that provided a directory of online videos, kind of uh, a layer above um, mm -hmm. YouTube to provide you with some direction as to what's cool to watch on YouTube. And I found a number of different types of these sites that they were visiting. It's almost like the early adopters are showing an early demand for some way to filter out and find interesting content that mm -hmm. maybe YouTube isn't doing uh, enough by just telling us what's popular and providing a search. We actually, there's so much out there, we need some direction as to where to go to find the best stuff. Yeah. So that, that might so, be a hot area. So here's a question. Do you think that happened before YouTube? Because there's actually quite a few video sharing things. YouTube's the one that, that won. But could you potentially look at the people that are kind of spread across these different new indexing of, of, of videos, take one of those and look at all the people that are going to that site and then see what they were doing before YouTube and see if there was people that you know are lost that didn't do the YouTube choice right away even as an early adopter yeah you could you could yeah. reverse search back that way too yeah. and yeah I don't know if you're familiar with it but there's this um, it's a great book called diffusion of innovation it was published back in the 70s by mm -hmm. Ev Rogers uh, the late Ev Rogers and he came up with this diffusion of innovation curve that shows you you know that products go through uh, diff different steps in adoption there's innovators and early adopters then early majority late majority and you know we're we're doing things now like isolating not just the early adopters but the the early midstream or mainstream we can actually see the crossover happen so we can actually see this pattern that Ev Rogers talked about in the 70s actually playing out in the data live, which is yeah. just fascinating. I think going to be really useful, probably one of the most useful things you can do with this data. Let's go ahead and take a call from Santa Cruz. Hal, welcome to GeekSpeak. Good morning. Uh, this is fascinating. Great, uh, great stuff. I heard uh, your guest mention that he uses Google Analytics to look at uh, who's coming to his site and for what, and uh, I do too, and I wanted to ask uh, for some tips and tricks to do that more effectively and also uh, are there any alternatives well yeah i'm i'm addicted to data so anywhere i can get data i get it and, yeah, me too. and yeah google analytics is, is a great tool and it's free you know which is the other great thing about it i found to my own personal experience the bounce rate is probably one of the most useful statistics it tells you uh, what your percentage is of users that just go to the first page and then then churn off immediately and go off to another domain it's so useful because as you adjust content on your site, you can actually see that bounce rate change. And if you watch that with some very rudimentary testing, you can kind of figure out what type of content is going to engage what, what your... What kind of testing? To tell, tell so me. just changing the content on your website, changing its display, changing what you're featuring above the fold when people first log in, and then see what happens to that bounce rate as you change your content. Okay. Uh, that that's probably one of the exercises I conduct the most. Um, then, of course, I, I love looking at the geographic information. So you can drill down and look at maps worldwide, even down to metropolitan areas and cities, and look to see uh, where people are coming from. Uh, looking at your search campaign, of course, uh, is probably the most valuable thing you can do with Google Analytics if you're doing a paid search campaign on uh, on Google. On Google What's AdWords? a search campaign? Yeah. If you're doing a Google AdWords um, uh, search campaign. Just going the next step, you can actually measure conversions if you're selling something online or if you're trying to get people to take a specific action. Google Analytics will give you the uh, ability to actually measure the conversion rate or the percent uh, of visitors that actually do the action that you want them to. And how Google AdWords, uh, there's, there's Google AdWords too, which also does this where you're, the basic idea is that when Google places text ads on different people's sites based off of what's on there, what kind of content on there. And the other thing you can do with Google is you can actually buy search uh, result uh, names. So you might buy fancy car, and anytime somebody searches for fancy car, you get the high traffic uh, ad on Google's page on the right-hand side. And then you can see with Google Analytics and using that the Google AdWords, you can see then how much that's turning into people visiting your site. 
that's the kind of thing that we're talking about to some degree. Yeah, I'm not selling anything on my site and don't take ads, so I don't know. That, that Some of that's not yeah, so applicable. Play around with the bounce rate because uh, you want people to read what you have on your site. Uh, that must I, be the, Should the, I look at the search terms that brought them there and sure. then try and figure out how to retain them based on that term? Yeah, take that a look at the search like terms. Idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Look at the search terms, and then maybe do one other thing. You know, kind of a um, the um, the cheap way of doing what what we do in, in kind of a industrial strength product uh, hit wise is you can go to Google Trends and then chart some of those terms that you see driving traffic to your site, and you'll get a sense of the seasonality of those search terms, their volume compared to other things. So trends.google.com yeah. will help you actually measure that. Here's some feedback for for the geeks. Uh, I I went to Firefox because of the guys recommending it, and I find uh, the browser being used to find me. Uh, it's a lot. There's a lot more Firefox and a lot less Internet Explorer than I would have expected. Yeah, and we we've seen this in other data sources. The servers actually measure the browser that's being used to access the server, and there's a number of uh, sites that give you the statistics of Explorer versus uh, Mozilla versus well, Google Safari. Analytics. Google Analytics. Does that? Yeah, so they're probably just um, uh, probably taking that data in from the Google uh, servers. I was always yeah. kind of surprised with the GeekSpeak uh, website that we actually still, I think, get more Internet Explorer visitors than really? Firefox visitors. Yeah, I would. Have, I would have thought that would be. Uh, you think that for, you'd have a yeah. higher? Yeah. yeah, I think that's because we have um, so many people. So many times we're talking about stuff that's helping out people, like on the phone and stuff. Mm -hmm. And those are you know not early adopters. They're people that are just average computer users, and they're looking for help. And those average computer users are not using Firefox. Yeah, which is, I'm, I'm fucking up every word you guys say. So. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks so much for the call. Yeah, which was doubly amazing considering that uh, Internet Explorer was broken on our site for, oh, <laughs> for quite a while. What do you mean was broken? That's no, because it held, us, held back our innovation for a long time. <laughs> You'd be so upset because well, we want to do something, yet we're going to break the site if we do it for a lot of people. On the contrary, um, there was a lot of a lot of people talk about, well, Internet Explorer is most of the market. But when I was originally doing the redesign for the site years ago, saying Internet Explorer, I think 5.5 was the mm -hmm. one version at that time, when Internet Explorer 6.0 came out, it broke the site. Yeah, It That's wasn't right. about coding yeah. for IE. It was coding for each version of IE. So I want to talk about the data itself. We haven't done this yet. Like, I'd, love, uh, I'd love to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, um, so, so how many people are we talking about? Where does the data come from? And um, how do you get specifics out of that? You know, I like you know, male, age groups, that sort of thing. It's a lot of questions. <laughs> so the, the, the data, in terms of the size of the data, 10 million Internet users U.S., uh, 25 million worldwide. The methodology that Hitwise has is a little bit different than, uh, than others that do audience measurement. Companies like Comscore and, um, and, uh, and Nielsen. What we do is uh, our primary methodology is agreements with ISPs, software is in, uh, installed on their networks that anonymizes and aggregates the HTTP requests that are coming across their servers, dumps it to our server where we can slice and dice it. Now, we have to remove ourselves several levels from the data, so we actually contract that data out um, so that we can't see any personally identifiable information, only the aggregate data, such as this percent of U.S. Internet users went to MySpace versus Facebook. Um, we have another set of data uh, that supplements the ISP data, and that's an opt-in uh, set of data. We also contract for that as well and remove ourselves from the collection of the data. But here, people have actually filled out surveys to tell us who they are by gender, by income, uh, by age bracket. And um, we get that data back, and we can then cross-tab our data to say, okay, show us where affluent Internet users went. That also provides us with the PRISM codes we were talking about. So I can say, you know, show me where shotguns and pickup segments went online, and so by group or cluster. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm wondering, uh, Bill, 
with the rise of social networking uh, websites, we have uh, a different form of data. I mean, people are putting stuff out that's personal, that's misspelled, that's <clears throat> odd and strange. Could you talk about trying to go through that kind of data as opposed to what was previously put on the internet? Yeah, you know, that that's a very good point is that um, with Web 2.0, with sites becoming more and more interactive, people are supplying a lot of data just to be viewed by the public in general. There's actually some tools like you can go, you know, another way of doing some free analysis, you can go to uh, Facebook Lexicon, which allows you to chart terms that people are discussing within Facebook itself to get a sense, the same sense that I get from internet data overall to what's being discussed on social networks. But you're right, it's a, it's a massive amount of data. There's good things and bad things to that. The good thing from, from my perspective is just there's more data for us to crunch to figure out what is making us tick. The bad side to it is that with that information explosion, it's getting a lot harder to actually find good information. Now, um, also, we've all been talking so far, I think, about text data, right? Do you, have you, do you foresee a time when you can pro process image data and other forms of data, sound? Yeah, I, I think we're just at the infancy of doing what, what is possible with this data. And I think, yeah, there's definitely opportunities. There's a lot of companies now just starting up that, that um, are finding ways to, to catalog and uh, process image data, for example, voice data. I, I think, yeah, we're just at the, the nascent stage of doing this analysis, and there's just be more and more opportunity to analyze. We're speaking with Bill Tanser. He's the author of Click, What Millions of People Are Doing Online and Why It Matters. There's more information about the subject up on our website, including more details about how they collect their data. Um, we also have Miles Elam, Rick Kleffel. I'm Lyle Troxel, and Sean Cleveland. Yeah, this kind of ties in with um, what, what Rick was just asking. And it's funny that <coughs> Miles, Lyle, and I talked about this in the, the ride coming up down to the show today. And that's um, the, the search terms um, that people are using a lot of times those, those, those first searches they do are no good. So they're, they're actually going back and changing the search terms. And, and Lyle mentioned, you know, I, when he does a Google search, he never goes. Well, you, you don't go deep. I don't go past like two pages. Yeah, and, and Miles and I don't either. Mm -hmm. So instead of going deeper into that search term, we'll just do a whole new search. So when you're looking at your data, I mean, is there a way that you can determine that, that somebody did that? Yeah, we actually have a metric that measures that. It's called success rate within Hitwise Speak. And what we do is we will tag any search terms in which somebody searched and then returned immediately to a search engine to search again is tagged as an unsuccessful search and we actually provide a metric of all mm. search terms what percent success versus I see so if they didn't follow past the first you know if they didn't click in the google page and actually go somewhere if, that's if instead not they executed another search it's yeah. tagged as unsuccessful so so do you know then what act, so let's say they make a search term, it's failure, they go change their search term, and then they end up going to a page. You kind of know that that page should really show up in that first search term group, right? You, you could, you could infer, infer that. And, so yeah, the, you, and the way our clients will use this data is they'll look for opportunities that are being missed right now. Like, for example, I remember seeing one just the other week of a misspelling of Canon, the, the, can, uh, the camera brand, mm -hmm. that it was misspelled and the success rate was extremely low. It was like 5%. So a lot of people apparently typing with this misspelling and not seeing any results um, to click on, then going and redoing their search, probably spelling it right using the suggestion within Google. But a, a marketer might look at that and say, you know what, we should be buying that misspelling because we mm -hmm. can probably put our data, our, um, our search listing there and you get a lot of that cam traffic. Canon cameras, right? Yeah. yeah. Could, could you talk about, uh, um, in your book you talk about how examining this data allows you to get at the decision-making process. That's a really fascinating idea. Yeah, it's not just the decision-making process, but a lot of really interesting things. You know, probably my favorite chapter to write was the fear chapter, fear, yeah. how-to. Yeah. 
You know, here's the thing is, and this, um, we had this idea one day when we were looking at our data, and again, this is an example of us just being allowed to play with the data to find something interesting. Millions of search terms crossing our servers, and we decided, what if we filtered this list by something like fear of? Because I think we saw one instance of a fear of search, and we thought, well, maybe people are searching on their fears, so let's filter all these million terms by just fear of. And the surprise when we did that is we found 1,300 unique fears that people were searching on in Whoa. this one little period. We could also rank them in terms of popularity. So we did that, and right away, the, the first thing that struck me is I want to compare this to surveys on fears. Sure. And my list was very different from the traditional survey of fears. What we found is that on our list, there's a lot of social fears showed up. Like what? Things like, you know, fear of uh, being alone, fear of intimacy, fear of other people, fear of groups. You think about it a second, and if we talk about representativeness in traditional surveys where you're doing a, maybe a telephone survey, you're probably not going to get social fear sufferers to participate in a telephone survey. Right, right. And if you do, they're probably not going to admit to those fears. And that also shows up in the tail of this list. You know, it's really interesting when you get to, like, term 1,000 and beyond. Things like uh, fear of uh, belly button lint and fear of elbows, fear of necks, wow. fear of ceiling fans. Again, people aren't going to probably admit to irrational fears in a survey, yet they show up uh -huh. in I'm search term data. I'm sorry, I have to ask. Fear of elbows. How does, how does that work? I, if you're a hockey player, I think. I, like, would, do, they stare, <laughs> do they stare at themselves and go, ah, 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 ah? Miles, I, you're making fun of someone's fear. No, <laughs> I, I realize it, but I, I don't understand. It's very insensitive. Is it, is it fear of someone else's elbow, someone else elbowing them as, do they a, actually, as an attack? Do they actually is go it, to a page that helps them? They do. You know, it's, it's hard when you get into the long tail because we're not going to capture much data on fear of elbows. Mm -hmm. But I, one thing I found was a fear of long words. I actually started doing some Google searches myself on these fears to see what had come up. And there's a lot of... Uh, of sites that seem somewhat not not that legitimate that are just taking the fear itself and putting it into uh, a uh, boilerplate page. This is if you have fear of belly button lint, then you can talk to one of our oh, right. specialists on right. belly button lint fears, right. and you know just repeats the the phrase. Whatever so. the phrase search phrase was, they they put a page up that makes yeah, that search phrase work exactly. But it's just fascinating to see this data. It goes to one of the issues we have with surveys today, which is cognitive dissonance, or people always want to be perceived in the best possible light. And as a market researcher by trade, this has been always one of the biggest challenges for, uh, for our trade is getting past that and getting to put people really think. And one of the only ways you can do that is by analyzing this aggregate user behavior and what people actually think. So, yeah, I think you really can yeah, get you, to things like decision um, processes. And You talk about that a lot in the book, and that's one of those things where when you get a survey of people together, either by phone randomly or you pull them in, they operate in ways that aren't really how they feel or how they think. And that's what you're talking about, cognitive dissonance. They do something different than what they're actually feeling. Like answer a question, yeah, I do like that kind of music when they don't. Right. And so in this kind of sense, you're not actually asking people, you're just looking at what they do and therefore gathering from what they do real data, potentially. Right. And I think there's, there's so much valuable information there. The one challenge, though, is you have to make the inference. So a great example there, fear of intimacy. Uh, it may not be the individual's got that fear when they're searching on it. It could be they have a concern about their significant other having mm -hmm. a fear of intimacy. So there is some wiggle room in this analysis, and there's an art to analyzing the data. And we go into this in the book, things like the Stacey Keebler correction coefficient, which we have to apply when we're trying to correlate popularity with search term data. So one of the exercises that we, we started to do, and this actually came up while I was on the road preparing a presentation in Dallas for a travel conference. In the background, uh, while I was preparing my presentation in, a, in my hotel room, Dancing with the Stars was on. And at some point in doing my slides, I thought to myself, well, if Dancing with the Stars is determined 
you know, a portion of it's determined, the, the results determined by popularity in terms of phone-in votes, text votes, searches, and people going to the website and actually voting uh, for, for one of their favorite contestants, then my search term data should correlate to popularity. And if that's true, I should be able to predict who's going to win. And so it was the night of the finale. I did my analysis. Stacy Keebler was the number one searched on of the three finalists. And so I made a proclamation that she was going to win. And she didn't. She came in third. Interesting. So we did a little post-mortem analysis on my prediction. And when we did a search term suggestion for Stacy Keebler in our data, it was like the Palin effect. People were looking for photos of Stacy Keebler, hot photos of Stacy Keebler. They, they thought she was interesting, but not necessarily worth winning. Right. And so then we you know, convened the analyst group, and we decided to come up with what we now call the Stacey Keebler correction coefficient, which we looked through the data <laughs> to infer intent. What are people doing when they're searching? Mm, yeah, so you don't just use the raw number. And since we've been very successful, except for a few instances, in predicting American Idol winners, uh, subsequent Dancing with the Stars winners, and we actually have you know, the, the executives of the company got a little nervous at one point. What's our, our, our head of research doing off on this tangent doing reality show television predictions? Yeah. I was doing it, uh, a lot of them. Uh, there's actually some real-world applications to this. Like, uh, we've been able to successfully predict unemployment uh, rates, the unemployment claims number that comes out Thursday by the Department of Labor based on how people are searching for unemployment. Uh, we've been able to uh, predict existing home sales, new home sales, based on internet behavior. So there actually is some real-world application. Uh, what about stocks? Stocks, difficult. Um, in some instances, rare instances, for companies that are traded publicly that primarily just sell online, uh, we can predict revenues. Stock, uh, there's so much goes into a stock price. Right. You can't really get to stock price, but you can predict revenues. And we have been able to look for uh, deltas or, or differences between what the street thinks the company's revenues are going to be and what our data tells it's going to be. Because if you know average sale price stays the same and the number of visits to a transaction stays the same, then our visit number should correlate really so tightly. So do you have online news organizations coming to you asking about this we, sort of data? and Financial institutions, um, news organizations, you know, writing for time, I actually use this data to inform editorial decisions. Yeah. So a lot of times I'll figure out what I'm going to write based on what people are searching for. Because I know like that I'm then developing content that's tailor-made to yeah. what the demand is. And are you investing in those things where you find that the Wall Street is differing from your research? I have no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a way to keep corporations honest, too. Yeah, in, 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 some ways, in, in a know. way. But you know, again, there's a lot of wiggle room, and it's a pretty isolated case that you can predict revenues yeah, on, yeah. Uh, yeah. Really? on a company. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, there's so many things that have to happen, line up correctly in order for you to do, be able to do that. You know, Bill, what, one thing that struck me is that you work in a company that deals in hard facts, statistics, math, but you talk a lot about playing, you talk about reality TV shows. Uh, that's a really, that's a cognitive dissonance right there. Yeah, it is. You know, it got, the company had to get used to the fact that I'm, I'm kind of quirky in that way. But, you know, it, it kind of, these, these weird quirky things we come up with bring life to the data and actually, I think, seed a lot of possibilities of what's exactly possible with this data when you can come up with the fact that maybe we can predict a reality television show using internet usage behavior. Well, it seems to me, too, that the dry math isn't just all there is. There's something outside of that, and that's what you're bringing to it. Right. There's, there's that art. So there's that interpretation of the data. Um, and it, it's challenging, too. Like you mentioned in the beginning, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges for us is the um, narrative fallacy, yeah. which is you get so in love with an idea 
you can find some data points that will support that idea. Yep. No matter how outrageous. Cherry picking data is actually a big science problem. I mean, it's, it, yeah. it, it can be. So, you know, we're constantly um, reminding ourselves as analysts of this data to back away from the problem and look for both things that confirm or might disprove the hypothesis that we've come up with. And that's the job of an analyst. I mean, that, that yeah. is a very difficult thing to do, to really look at large Absolutely. data and stuff. I, you know, we only have a few more minutes in the show, but I was really fascinated by this map that actually Matt um, Hindeman and Anthony Hayes. Uh, did about blogs and how they link to each other and how the traffic flows. Can you t describe a little bit about that? Absolutely. And this is one of the one of the best things we did at Hitwise is we opened up our data to some academics. So if you're working at a university, you can call me and I'll find a way to get you access to the data if you can come up with some interesting use for it. Mm -hmm. And so Matt Himmon, who works at Arizona State, looked at our politics data and he was able to create this three-dimensional map of how people traverse the political blogosphere. And it was really fascinating when he did it. What he did is he took about um, a thousand sites within our political blog category, coded them by ideology, so he had left, right, and centric, and then showed the interconnectedness of all of these blogs to one another. What's and not, the strengths of their interconnectedness. The, the strengths because, of their yeah. interconnectedness. And then when you did that, you could see which blogs actually show up as sort of the um, as the central point, as, as where people are traversing through to get to information. But what's really interesting, what doesn't show up in the book, which we've just been analyzing recently, is looking at time series for that exact same data. Oh, interesting. And here's what it, what's really fascinating about this and why I can't predict a presidential election, is the closer you get to the actual election, the more crossover traffic happens. So if you were to run a movie of this, the, um, the complexity of those connections grow immense the closer you get to election because people are bouncing back and forth to different ideologies, right. both in terms of trying to decide but also arming themselves with... Uh, checking out opposing viewpoints and then forming yeah. their arguments based on that. Our author today was Bill Tanser. His book is Click, What Millions of People Are Doing Online and Why It Matters. You can go to geekspeak.org to find out more. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks for having me. The Geeks Today, Miles Elam, Rick Kleffel, and Sean Cleveland. My name is Lyle Troxell. Geekspeak is a registered service mark of online tonight with David Lawrence and is used by permission. Geekspeak on KOSP is supported by Santa Cruz Electronics, offering extensive selection of computer and electronic parts as well as support services. Santa Cruz Electronics is open daily at 2808 SoCal Avenue and online at SantaCruzElectronics.com. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is a weekly hour-long radio quiz program. Each week on the radio, you can test your knowledge against some of the best and the, be the best and brightest in the news and entertainment world while figuring out what's real news and what's made up. On the web, you can play along too. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on Central Coast Public Radio. Broadcasting in HD radio and 88.9 FM, this is Central Coast Public Radio, KOSP Santa Cruz, KBDH San Auto, streaming live and podcasting at KOSP.org. Really quick, Rick, what are you doing on Sunday's show? Uh, this Sunday, I'm speaking with the 10 of the 12 women who wore the necklace. They these 12 women went in and bought a $37,000 diamond necklace, shared it for 28 days per year. Their story is really fascinating. Oh, very cool. So the traveling necklace. Yes. That's uh, an agony column on Sundays at... 6 p.m. 6 p.m. on KUSP. I'll be back next week as long with the geeks, um, and we'll see you online until then. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.